Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a terrific chat room with some wonderful folks that join us, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yeah, we do have a great chat room. The only problem is you are not there. So I want everyone out there to come on and join us. Just say hello, or if you have questions about the show, you know, uh, put them up in the chat room. And we have we have lots of fun, lots and lots of fun. So just come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, in this week's spotlight, I wish to bring your attention to a couple of new pieces of research that directly impact our understanding of what it is to be human. The first is the incredible new link discovered between the brain and immune system. This discovery has literally overturned decades of teaching. Researchers have discovered vessels connecting the brain and the immune system directly. The old textbooks insisted on no direct connection, but the new discovery actually maps the vessel connection between the lymphatic system and the brain. This provides an entirely new avenue by which immune responses can be studied. With direct pathways, the mechanism itself can be observed. In the words of Dr. Jonathan Kippis, professor in the University of Virginia's Department of Neuroscience, the discovery, quote, changes entirely the way we perceive the neuroimmune interaction. We always perceived it as something esoteric that can't be studied, but now we can ask mechanistic questions, close quote. There is no doubt that not only will all sorts of new treatments for diseases such as autism and Alzheimer's emerge from this new discovery, but perhaps we will actually find the magic behind the placebo factor. So just imagine a world where the immune system can be augmented by mimicking the placebo effect itself. Okay, the next issue that changes how we view the human condition may well come from new work in the physics laboratory. We explored some of this last week right here on Provocative Enlightenment. I have often addressed the issue of free will. Do we really have it? fMRI studies have conclusively demonstrated that most of our decisions are actually carried out in the non-conscious And it can take several seconds before the conscious mind becomes aware of the decision. Now, the latest twist from the quantum suggests the future is already known. And if so, then what happens to free will? In a new study published in Nature Physics, time appears to move backward. Quoting from Second Nexus, and again, quote, Things may exist in multiple states, and a tree fell in the woods not only may depend on whether anyone actually ultimately saw it, but also on whether something somehow knew it would be seen. Close quote. Now that's interesting. You have to know that it's going to be seen before it becomes a relevant question. Did the tree fall in the forest? 
Using a truly creative and novel design to examine the thought experiment of John Wheeler, which asks the question, exactly when does a photon decide to become a wave or a particle, Australian researchers discovered that this all depends on something in the future. Again, quoting from the article, it was as if the helium particle knew whether there would be a second grate sometime in the future at the time it passed through the first. The possible future presence of that second grate appeared to be determining the past state of the atom as it passed through grate number one. Whether it continued as a particle or changed into a wave depended on something that might happen in the future. Close quote. And you may ask, how is that possible? And the answer is unknown. Nevertheless, the fact is the future somehow decided the action, which begs the question once more, where is our free will? Last week we discussed this conundrum with Dean Radin, and it turns out this bit of research is already pretty solid in the literature. There is no doubt the future is affecting our present and past. Now, for most of us, our entire lives have been filled with answers. The earth came into existence some 5.4 billion years ago. Evolution explains the miracle of life on earth, and Homo sapien is just the latest in the higher-thinking nature of the evolutionary tree. Maybe these things are true. We've also been taught that thalidomide was safe. Columbus discovered America. Edison invented the light bulb. DNA was hardwired. Brain cells began dying in your 30s and never regenerated, etc., 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 all of which are blatantly false. Will it also turn out that free will is an illusion, that our futures are already somewhat programmed, that disease is an error in thinking, and correcting that error turns on our so-called placebo powers and heals us without the need of medication? Your thoughts on this, Ravinder? You know, I find all of that fascinating. As you're aware, you know, I've been interested in the placebo effect for forever and doing my own research there. So the fact that there's actually a hardwire connection between the two, um, that is one that I want to go and actually read the paper, you know, so I can check out all all the details. So, uh, yeah, no, I find that absolutely intriguing. Um, I don't tend to think they're going to find all the magic behind placebo. I I do still believe in the think of higher mechanistically. power and all of that kind of stuff. So. Think of it mechanistically. I mean, uh-huh. there are there are placebo effects that have nothing to do with higher power. So we're not talking about spiritual healing, prayer. What, what we're talking about is, you know, I can hand you a pill, a plain white pill. You know this. Mm-hmm. And it will have maybe oh, yes. 20, 25% effect. But if I... If I put a initial on that pill, it becomes more powerful. If I turn it into a capsule, it's still more powerful. If I colorize the capsule, it's yet again more powerful. Uh-huh. On and on, right up to an injection. And sometimes we can have placebo effects 75% effective, which you know is challenging the effectiveness of many medications. So now what if what we're doing is watching the mechanism, we're actually watching the pathways from the brain through the lymphatic system as as a result of this placebo effect. You don't believe that we're going to be able to initiate some imitation method to that? Oh, I'm I'm sure we will. I it's, as I said, I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating. Um 
Yeah, definitely a place to do some more reading on. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dean Radin. We discussed his book Supernormal and some of the possible ramifications to the idea that time may run backwards and our that there is no such thing as time in the quantum world. Dean brought our attention to some early experiments predating today's spotlight involving delayed erasure circumstances. It would appear that the evidence is in the future may, well, it does impact the present and the past, as mind-boggling as that may seem. Brian wrote, my future self says this was a good show and I should not miss it. I love that one, Brian. That's a great one. Richard remarked, isn't this terribly exciting to be let in on something so very new, one of your truly great shows? Elizabeth wrote, the whole thing about free will troubles me. You suggested that it may be our spark of consciousness as a part of the whole of consciousness. I think you called it intelligence that communicates from the future to our present. Do you think our higher mind is telling us what to do? That's a very interesting and intriguing question, Elizabeth. And I suppose, you know, in many ways, I do think so. That is precisely what I think. Mark wrote, while Dean Radin views consciousness as playing a larger role in existence than mainstream physicists would accept, he shares a fundamental philosophical and mistaken view with most of them. The Kantian view with consciousness as primacy over existence. Such is the departure from Newtonian physics, which holds the view that existence has primacy over consciousness. By so doing, modern physics abandoned the Newtonian quest to discover the nature of entities and their actions in an objective universe, replacing it with the Kantian rationalistic approach of applying mathematical descriptions to appearances. However, there is a school of thought within modern physics, though a minority, that holds that existence has primacy over consciousness, even at the quantum level, and that modern physics should continue to study the nature of entities and their causal actions. For example, Dr. Lewis E. Little, a contemporary modern physicist, explains in his book, The Theory of Elementary Waves, a new explanation of fundamental physics, his theory of the activity at the subatomic level, with the same understanding of cause and effect that governs all other science. While Dean Rain's Ultimate goal is to scientifically explain the role that consciousness plays in the nature of reality. It is important that he do so from a solid foundation and not one built upon the sands of bad philosophy and science. That's a very interesting um, letter, Mark. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I agree with the idea that uh, Kantian rationale should be discarded but we definitely should be looking at these simultaneously that i totally concur with we often overlook the obvious in our attempt to reduce things into some uh, description mathematically moving on marilyn wrote your inner talk cds definitely helped me through stressful and difficult times i love them marcia wrote i can't believe how magical your inner talk cds are and all you have to do is listen you have changed my life for the better in so many ways. Thank you for all your work and your willingness to share it. I tell everyone about your CDs because they really worked. God bless. 
Jack wrote, Ravinder always writes the best articles. I love listening to both of you on your show. You do write some great articles. You've been really, you know, championing the newsletter lately with a series of articles. How does that make you feel? I think it's really cool. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a process. I'm learning all of this stuff at the same time. So, yeah, sometimes I get inspired to write something and I go back and read it. Oh, yeah. That's right. I could learn from that too. Um, and it, <laughs> it is. It's, it's a whole process. I'm, I'm enjoying it, and I'm really glad that people out there are responding as well as they are. All right. Will wrote, Hi, just to say that your emails are like the scent of a flower carried on a breeze, singular yet infinite. That's a love poem. <laughs> I love it. Raylene wrote, Just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy your emails. I get so much email, most of it junk, but I always find time to read yours. I've set up my email filter to flag yours and mark it in a color that stands out so I won't miss it. Thank you. Now, you listen, for all of you out there, if you don't already receive our e-newsletter, it's free, so subscribe today. Don't miss another issue. Just go to eldentaylor.com to do so. You can send Ravindra a flowery letter when she, you know, does her piece in the newsletter as well. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldentaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, The Death Experience, What It Is Like When You Die. With Alan Yugano. There are many things we do not learn in school nowadays. Students are not taught how to get a job, how to arrange a home loan, how to pay taxes, how to balance a checkbook, how to vote, how many different laws there are that impact all of us daily, and so on. And they're definitely not taught how to die or what to expect when you do. Should they? Dying seems to be pretty inevitable, at least for the vast majority, and as Tolstoy points out so well in his short story, The Death of Ivan Illich, we live a meaningless life if we never consider death as a part of it. So where do we learn about death and dying? Today there is a new awareness regarding the importance of understanding the death process, and more and more counseling classes have been dedicated to this subject, in an attempt to aid those who are grieving. But with this new interest, there is still little being done to mentor the healthy among us in preparation for the inevitable transition from this lifetime. Enter today's guest, Alan Yugano, experienced his own death event and wrote the book on what to expect when you die. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Yugano. Dr. Alan Yugano is a near-death experiencer himself who has made a life study of the physics of the afterlife. After graduating from college in mechanical engineering, he had a successful career as a naval architect and today serves on several national engineering standards writing committees. But today is also an active consciousness researcher and currently serves as a national board member for the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Since the fall of 2014, he has been working with a consciousness research lab at the Institute for Noetic Sciences, where he is a test medium. He often speaks at conferences throughout the U.S. on the science of life 
afterlife, and mediumship. Besides his professional education in science and engineering and 40 years of research into the near-death experience, he began the scientific study of evidential mediumship 10 years ago. Since then, he has graduated from Morris Pratt's Institute's four-year course of study in mediumship and has studied abroad at Arthur Finley College of Psychic Science. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Alan Yugano. Thank you very much, Alvin. It's indeed our pleasure, sir. Listen, you know, uh, before we get into your work, your NDEs, your book, and more, we like to get three things out of each of our guests. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end... Tell us about your life as a young person. Were you popular, a loner, involved in sports, other activities? Were you raised religious? I mean, who was young Alan? Okay, I, I was a... I've got a bit of a cold today, but uh, I was a... Uh, as a young man, I was a sailor. Um, I was in the Sea Scouts. I had a lot of sailboats. I went to... Uh, my mother and father attended the Baptist Church. Um, and, of course, they told me uh, there that uh, being a medium was of the devil. Um, so today I'm doing the devil's work, I guess. <laughs> and um, so that's what I was as a young man, and I've shifted quite a bit from that. But because I was a sailor, <clears throat> I, you know, I sailed. That was my sport. I went sailing all the time, very sailboats. I then went into the Navy during the Vietnam War, and I served as a navigator. And uh, then I um, uh, finished college. And um, um, went to work in, as a naval architect marine engineer. And that's kind of where I, how I proceeded. I started out in boats, and I'm still working with boats today. And the boats are kind of like um, my thing. Um, did you, you, know, did you grow up on the coast, were, or uh, what's that? Did you grow up on the coast, or I grew up in. Uh, in I was born in Hollywood, California. Uh, I grew up uh, in Los Angeles vicinity, out in the valley. Um, and uh, went to John H. Francis Polytechnic High School there. And then we moved north up into Oregon, and I finished high school in Oregon and then joined the Navy. So I've always been on the coast, and then working as a naval architect, I moved all around the country, uh, wherever they had shipyards on all the coasts. Um, but as a young man, I was um, very much uh, your typical um, neighborhood kid, uh, getting into a lot of trouble um, <laughs> and uh, doing things. And uh, I was uh, a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout. Those were popular things in those days. And um, so I did a lot of camping and hiking and that sort of thing. And uh, but sailing uh, just, you know, puts me so much more sense to me than, than everything else. So I just pursued that. Interesting. Now, do you have brothers and sisters? I have two sisters. <clears throat> I'm the only boy in the family. And, and are they I'm still the Baptist? <clears throat> Uh, one of them is very much a Baptist. She thinks that because I'm a medium, I'm going to hell. Um, and the other one is uh, sort of, um, I'd say she's more spiritual, but she's not much religious. <clears throat> so she accepts the medium side of yourself? Oh, yeah, she accepts that. She accepts everything I do. And she's, she's uh, not judgmental. Uh, she got it beyond that. Um, doesn't judge most people. She just kind of wants to have a good time. Okay, now, you know, it has such a huge jump. You, you know, you're educationally, you're, you're, you're trained as a scientist. You're, you know, you're 
technical education for all intent and purposes is engineering and you're a naval architect. Um, you, you have peers today that are still in that field because you contribute to the field. Uh, how do they deal with the fact that you're now a medium? Well, I don't usually bother most of them with that because they don't deal with it well. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, word, bother. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, if I go to a conference and we're talking about a standard, we're writing it, and we're staying in a hotel, I just work with the science, the <clears throat> Newtonian physics that they're using, and, and uh, I realize that, you know, Newtonian physics is a very good uh, approximation of what's really going on here in reality and what we call reality. And so I just stay in Newtonian physics. I just knew from the very beginning, having had my near-death experience while I was still a college student, that we were not looking at the whole picture. We are just looking at a little corner of it. But it works really well for most of what we're doing in our, what we today would call light energy, the 4% of the universe that we conceive. Um, and Newtonian physics works fine. So when I go to a conference like that, I just uh, stay on the Newtonian side, unless... For some reason, <clears throat> one of the people at the conference happens to be talking about metaphysical things, and metaphysics means beyond physics, and in which case, yes, I'll start talking. You know, I'm, I'm a very honest guy, but I don't usually bother them with, with uh, something that they would find controversial. And that works pretty good. Then they don't, don't think, oh, he's a kook, you know. And uh, okay. if you do that with some people, they think, well, you're a kook. You, you believe that. Well, then you couldn't be good right about anything else either. And that's the way they think. So I just don't bother them with it. So uh, you have not experienced, I mean, or perhaps I'm putting words, I should just change that and say, have you experienced being shunned by colleagues because of, you know, your NDE, your books, your mediumship, uh, and, you know, the metaphysics that's not Aristotelian metaphysics, but rather the metaphysics of something yet beyond Aristotle? Well, originally when I had the near-death experience and I was in the hospital, I wanted to talk about it. And um, the psychiatrist there uh, wanted to put me in the nut house. He literally tried to commit me. And my, I was in the hospital 33 days. I was in a coma for 12 hours, and that's when I had the near-death experience. And then I was there for yet another 33 days. And <clears throat> he would come and say, well, what you're saying couldn't possibly be true. <clears throat> you're acting like you died and came back. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, it couldn't possibly be true. And I said, well, you've got all your degrees, and, and you're an MD and all that. You've studied all this stuff. But I've been to Mexico, and you're telling me Mexico doesn't exist. And he, he didn't like that. I was saying, you know, you, you're saying Mexico's not across the border. I've been across that border. You haven't. And he got the picture of what I was saying. You haven't been there, and you're telling me I, I can't possibly have died and come back. And that sort of made him mad. And, and eventually he tried to put me in the nut house and my... Um, my uh, orthopedic surgeon came in one day and threw my clothes in my lap, put in the wheelchair, and took me out the back freight elevator out the back door. And my mother had the car running, and we left town. Um, wow. That's how I got out of the hospital, so I wouldn't get committed. That was in 1970. And so originally, I was shunned a lot. I couldn't talk about it. I went to the church. I said to the church, uh, to the to the preachers, you know, I said, you know, I've been, I've seen the afterlife. I know what it's like. And they would say not, that doesn't agree with scripture, so uh, it couldn't be true. And so I was shunned a great deal in the 1970s. And then uh, uh, Raymond Moody wrote his book in 1974 and published it in 75 about life after life and coined the phrase near death experience. 
And then the Near-Death Association began to form in 77, 78. By eighty people began to talk about it. And now they pay me to come someplace and tell the story. So <laughs> I've come a long way from the nut house to telling the story. Yeah, you have. Okay, well, we have a hard break coming up, Dr. Yugano, so uh, we'll pick it up when we come back. We are speaking with Dr. Alan Yugano about his life, work, and book, The Death Experience, What It Is Like When You Die. It's a great read. To learn more about Dr. Yugano, visit his website at afterlife.pro. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room as well. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Alan Yugano about his life, work, and book, The Death Experience, What It Is Like When You Die. Now we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than most recognize. Music can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, 
Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In fact, according to a recent study, you can determine one's social class by their favorite music, and I guess I'm in trouble based on that, because I admit I like country, western, and bluegrass just as much as I do, you know, classical music and ballet. As such... There are, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in the selection of one's favorite music. Okay, we just played Going Home by Paul Robison. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Yugano? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, it describes exactly what it's like to go to the other side. Um, he talks about quite like some still day, I'm just going home. And in another verse, he says, there's no break, there's no end just a living on, wide awake with a smile going on and on. It's not far, yes, close by, through an open door. I'm just going home. And that's what the near-death experience is like. When you die, um, you just, just like uh, the biblical phrase, in the twinkling of an eye, you snap your fingers and you're over there. It's over. You're not here anymore. You're on that side. And all the pain is left behind, all the 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 sorrow, all the struggles left behind. You're home like, like uh, you've never been home in your life here on this on this side. That's the feeling that the new death experience gives to everybody. You're home uh, when you're there talking, um, communicating. I have to say because you don't talk like we do here. You just use ESP. And when you're communicating with the being of light, which some people will see as Jesus, others will see as Krishna, others will see as Buddha but the being of light that you're talking with, some see it as our higher power. Um, when you're there communicating with the being of light, you're so home like you've never been. I felt like I was back where I uh, was a thousand years ago. I had, I'd been there for, for ages, and I was back. And so I like what uh, Paul Robinson sings there when he, when he sings that particular song, Going Home. And I've been waiting for... Um, 45 years now, I mean, uh, the being of light said, well, Alan, you have to go back. You have to go back to the, the physical life. You're not done yet. And I said, so uh, I don't want to go back. And um, the being of light said, well, uh, yeah, that's not uh, it's not a choice. You, you have to go back. And I said, well, how long? He says, not long, just a little while, and you can come back here. That's been 45 years. Hmm. So I'm, I'm ready to go any moment. I've been ready to go for 45 years. Well, I'm here, I'm productive, I do things, I you know, accomplish a lot, I do a lot of work in this world, but I'm ready to go and I've been wanting to go for 45 years. And some people say, well, <clears throat> why don't you just uh, commit suicide and go? Well, the reason is because when we're there, we're told you're not done yet. And so if you were to commit suicide and not have a viable body, you wouldn't come back in the same body, you'd have to start over again in another body because you're not done yet. You'd have to come back here. So why start over when, you know, we just finish our task, which we've come here to do, and when we're done with that, then we can go. All right. And, well, let's, uh, let's so, explore your NDE. Let's, let's just go into yeah. it in some detail. Uh, you're in college. What happens? I had a motorcycle wreck. I was, uh, you know, coming home on uh, West 13th Avenue in Eugene, Oregon, and the guy turned left. He thought he could get into the parking lot. Um, between the car in front of me and the car behind me, he never saw me, and so he left me the side of his station wagon to run into. 
and um, I turned a little bit. I tried, you know, it's wet pavement, and I, you know, coming out of the sun under the clouds, so he really didn't have a chance to see me. And so I tried to turn <clears throat> towards the um, to the left so that I would miss him. So I lost my right kneecap. I have a steel in my right femur. I've got uh, the right wrist was completely broken off, and then. Uh, head injury, and uh, I took a nice bite out of his luggage rack. Our, our helmets in those days didn't come around our chin like they do now. And so I got a nice bite out of his luggage rack, and I got cracks and seizures all up through the forward part of my my skull. And I was uh, pretty well ruined. And um, so I went, uh, I was still conscious for a little bit there, and it happened to be the accident took place right in front of a an ambulance company, and the guy who was checking the oil in the ambulance, he just put the hood down and drove right over to me and took me to the hospital. And then about three hours after the accident, um, you know, in those days, we don't do what we do now. You have a head injury. In those days, they just wait to see if you survive. Nowadays, they'll cut your skull open and let your brain swell. Uh, we've learned that in Iraq with the um, IEDs, and, and uh, right. we've learned in, in that military situation how to how treat a a head injury. But in those days, they just let your brain swell, and if <clears throat> it didn't kill you, well, then they often break you on you the next day. So about three hours later, I went into a coma, and I was in the coma for 12 hours. And I recall coming back out of that coma. <clears throat> it's like I knew exactly what time it was. So I woke up at 7.45 and asked for a phone, and I had to convince the nurse that she could bring me a phone. And then when I tried to dial it, I realized my hand was in a splint, and I couldn't dial and but I was calling the boss to tell him I wouldn't be in at eight o'clock, and mm-hmm. that's why I woke up out of the the coma. And I always thought, I wonder if people had a reason to wake up if they would. Um, I was, you know, just being a responsible employee. So I woke up at seven forty-five and called the boss. Um, you know, time is an illusion, but I apparently I knew what time it was, and I came back. So then, after I got back, then I began to talk to everyone there about this this experience, the near-death experience, and what was that like? Well, I don't remember going through a tunnel like everybody remembers. A lot of people remember going through a tunnel with a light at the end of the tunnel. I just went directly to the light um, when I uh, went into the, the uh, I was in the coma, and whether I was dead or not, I still had a um, vital signs, uh, still had a heartbeat, still had a, a brainwave. But um, I Definitely went to the other side, went directly to the light, and that's where I woke up. And uh, people have a, a life review. I sort of have blocked that out, I guess, because I don't remember the life review, but we were definitely um, talking about it or, or ruminating on um, the life experience that we'd just gone through. So I, I, that's blocked from my memory. But we were ruminating on I wasn't finished yet because I hadn't finished everything I came to do. And so then I'm just sort of uh, laying there being nurtured and, and uh, you know, uh, brought, brought back, uh, not quite resuscitated, but nurtured. Um, you know, you, you, when you get killed like that, you're, you've gone through some pain and trauma. And uh, it's like the trauma was being taken away. So when I came back, I never felt the trauma. I was, you know, I was, crippled, but I, I never felt the trauma. Mm-hmm. And so that had been taken away. And um, I, my main 
remembrance is that I was um, told you have to go back. And then I came back into the body. And where most near-death experiencers will say to you, oh, I was suddenly back in my body. And they talk all about going down the tunnel and everything. And I have the opposite experience. I remember very viscerally coming back into the body. P.H.M. Atwater also writes in some of her books about this same experience. And in a couple of her, she's had like three or four near-death experiences. But in a couple of them, she saw the same things I did, which are flames. I came back into the body through flames. She saw sparklers. Um, and it's, some people say, well, that was your extra consciousness or uh, annihilated as you came back into the body because we're in a limited condition here. That's what some physicists who do talk on the subject say. I think it was your consciousness annihilating back in the zero-point field, and that's you saw sparkles of flames. Thoth Hermes, 6,000 years ago, said the soul was encased in flames. And so, to me, they were just candle flames. They weren't flames you burn in, but we come into the flames, into the body. We slam back into the body. And as I did that, I saw a series of colors. It's like the, the, the veil shut down between me and the other side, and it comes down like uh, tendrils of tie-dyed um, batik curtain. And so where it's where, where it had a, a white, golden-white light becomes an orange sunset sky, and then it turns red and, and, and white. And all the colors, if you read in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, what it's like when you die, I saw all those colors in reverse of what the Tibetan Book of the Dead has going into death. I saw them coming out of death in reverse. And I was fascinated. I didn't read the Tibetan Book of the Dead for about another 15, 20 years after that. And I was fascinated because I wrote the description down within the first three months. But then uh, years later, I'm reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and it's the exact opposite colors in the reverse order. Mm-hmm. And so finally it gets purplish, and, and it disappears altogether. And I, I felt that as the, as the veil closed down, I thought there was... The veil of blood and tears is what I saw it as. That, that we're, we're coming back into this existence, the pain and the feeling of this existence, and all the feelings we have in this life. If you pinch your two fingers together, you're feeling the two fingers, but if you pinch harder, it begins to hurt. And all the feelings that we have in this life are actually pain, taken at different intensities. And that's what I felt, is this tremendous pain of this life as I came back into physical. And it wasn't the pain of my injuries. It's the pain of this existence. My injuries, uh, that pain was being taken care of pretty well with morphine and other things. And so then people say, well, you had a morphine trip. You know, that's just what you did. Well, I don't know. I think I had a near-death experience, and, and I very definitely saw these things. And at the time, no one was speaking about near-death experience. It was five years before Moody wrote his book. And I wrote it all down, and, and uh, later I... People began, it became popular, I'll just say it that way. And as it became popular, I realized that's exactly what happened to me, and here the other people are now talking about it. Okay, what do you say uh, to those people like Kevin Nelson who would say, you know, this was, uh, you know, this was a REM event? Um, and in fact, Kevin Nelson's peer research paper, and I'm sure your peer-reviewed paper, I should say, I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, documents uh, REM activity in the dying brain, or so-called dying brain. What, what do you say to them when they say, you know, there's, there's nothing in this that uh, is evidence 
of an NDE. I mean, it isn't like you uh, you went across town and uh, witnessed a fire or a three-alarm fire somewhere that you couldn't have known about uh, and so forth. How do you respond to that, sir? Okay, I respond to what I did in the August uh, 2013 uh, issue of uh, Scientific American. Um, Mark, Michael Shermer had, had written a, uh, one of his skeptic articles where he was saying that uh, even Alexander III, uh, Dr. Even Alexander, was having a hallucination when he had his near-death experience. And what I, what I wrote there in that uh, letter, in the printed that, as the letter says, recall, I said, so if in the near-death experience we're having a hallucination, how come is it we all have the same hallucination, going through a tunnel, having a, a near, uh, life review, meeting with a being of light? We all have this same now, I don't want to. I, I don't want to cut you off there, but... I mean, Michael has been on the show. We've we've talked about this. Well, I like Michael. This. I just, I just, yeah. that's just me saying to him. But it isn't always the same hallucination. You know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which you brought up. There are doors that you would you you could choose to to pass between as you're going over. Uh, and as you pointed out, it might be Buddha. It might be Siddhartha. It might be, well, that's kind of uh, redundant, isn't it? It might be yeah. Jesus. Uh, uh, you know, there is a predisposition. There seems to be a cultural bias inherent to what people experience. So it's a fair question. I, now, don't get me wrong. I am absolutely convinced that okay. NDE phenomena is real. So my question is really in how you, um, I mean, you're a scientist. How did you task yourself to verify that, you know, this is something genuine outside of uh, the arguments of a dying brain or REM cycles and so forth? Um, as the, uh, at first, I just knew that I knew something that science wasn't taking account of. And later, as we began to develop uh, the Near-Death Society and we began to examine thousands of cases, then correlated that we're all having the same experience, although we color our explanation of it with words like, I saw Jesus or I saw Buddha. We color it with our own experience, because trying to describe something that's, that's um, not describable, people say, well, what did the being of light look like? And we say, well, it was an energy field, kind of a golden white light, definitely a person, a being, but uh, not with arms and legs. You know, And so we're trying to describe something indescribable. So We'll say, well, it was God, it was Jesus, it was, you know, but what we're doing, we're, we're describing it from our own culture. And yet, when you examine the what everyone's saying, they're saying the same thing in different words, in different cultural description. They're saying the same thing. I saw a being of light. And a being of light seemed to have some sort of power. Um, okay. You might so, argue, you know, that was an archetype, but I don't want to. I don't want to whip a, a dead horse. Instead, let me let me change it up and ask it this way. You know, some NDE reports have been demonstrated to be false. Period. Interested parties have just made up a story for attention and or personal gain. You know, one recent example of that is uh, the Alex uh, Malarkey, um, yes. young man who authored the Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. <clears throat> And, you know, I believe that falsified material damages the field's credibility and thereby, you know, I think that when when you know that there is false material out there, if you are someone like yourself, you should call it out. So, you know, 
I, I constantly question myself and question the material that's advanced about metaphysical science, and I'll put that in quotation marks, because I think we owe it to ourselves to be honest about that. So when there is, I mean, it's, this is a two-part question, I guess. So when, when you know that there is falsified information out there, and, you know, you look at that information, and no matter how much you want to believe it, 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 you know, no matter how patently it fits some pattern that is the same everyone else has, um, how, how do you suggest that we determine the veracity of these reports? I mean, should we be looking, case in point, you mentioned Eben Alexander, should we be looking at his background and determining his credibility as we would in a court of law if he were an expert witness? Well, um, I've worked as an ex- expert witness quite often in the um, so cultural field. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact, to me, fact checkers are always looking for a reason to disbelieve something. And we have to be very careful in all that we do. We have to, we have to, to, to look for the truth, and truth speaks through something, you know. And, and there are people like malarkey, and what a, what a beautiful name for somebody who's a bunch of malarkey. Um, you know, uh, there are people like that who fake something and then later actually confess that they were faking it. And um, you have to look uh, with, you have to squint at everything. you, you got to look at it carefully and see if it agrees. And this is what we do with thousands of near-death experiences. Does it agree with the others? There's a lot of people come back and, and they'll tell you what the afterlife is like. And they're over there for an hour and they'll tell you, I went to all these other realms and I saw all this. And yeah, sure. Um, maybe time doesn't exist over there, but really, um, you didn't go there and become a citizen. You didn't stay for two years, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we were to send an expedition of people into the afterlife and then stay for two years and then come back, they might be able to tell us what the afterlife is like. Most of us, having a near death experience, were there for a very short time. We had some experiences. And so I, I look at the where everyone agrees, when they, what they call it, where they come together and they are in agreement, and then I say, maybe we know this fact. Okay, and if we if they don't agree, then I say, okay, well, then we don't know that fact. Like, we know there was a being of light, but we don't know that it was Jesus or Buddha, or, or you know, we don't know any of that because everybody disagrees. But mm-hmm. they do agree a being of light. Um, Fakir is a guy that lives down in San Jose, and, and he sort of tortures himself out of body, uh, rather than having a near-death experience, he's doing things to himself. He likes piercings and things, but he has been on the other side, and when he went to the to the light, uh, when he was doing in uh, Lakota Indian uh, ritual, um, he sort of tortured himself out of body. He went to the light, and the light that he spoke to said, well, I am whatever you want me to be. Whatever your tradition mm-hmm. is, that's who I am. Sounds like Moses, I, like that. I am that I am. I like that. The, the being of light is whoever you think he is. Yeah. I like that. Um, because then it, nobody, everybody's not disagreeing, they're just seeing their own thing. And many of us, as we go through life, everything that we see in life is an illusion. We sort of have some shared illusions, we, um, you know, that we share collectively, but we sort of modify our own illusions. So just what is real, said the rabbit. And I look at things that way. I'm a scientist, right. but I allow room for error and mistakes and 
people not in complete agreement, and yet, even though they're not in complete agreement, they may be telling what for them is the truth. Okay, let me ask you this, and very pointedly, sir. There's one popular reporter in the NDE area who has written and uh, and claims that you come back with um, a higher IQ. That That's very common among NDE, some as high as 200. Do you come back with a higher IQ? I had one already tested um, before I went, so I don't think it increased any. And do you find that to be a common experience? Is that one of those that, you know, um, is common like everything else uh, to your test of NDEs? Um, I haven't haven't researched that one. Um, I do have a theory. Uh, Some people say, how come out of um, uh, 100 heart attack uh, victims, only 20% will have a near-death experience? And is that because of their level of spiritual growth, or is that because of their IQ, or is there some factor that causes that, that only a fifth of them have the experience, and the other four had the same exact physical experience and yet didn't have the near-death experience? I don't know that. That's a wonderful question, and I would like to answer it. But whenever I speculate, if I speculate an answer, then people start quoting me as, that's what I said, that's what it is, and that's not true. Um, So I don't know if they had a more perceptive ability of some sort, by being more spiritual, higher IQ, or something else, or not. We don't know yet, but it's a good area to look into. And I've worked a lot with uh, Dean Radin and and Dr. DeLorme at the uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences as a a medium, uh, sub-test subject. And I've learned that we have to do protocols that are triple blind so that we can prove what we're actually trying to prove, whatever little little piece of information we're trying to prove. We have to do triple blind protocols. And so much of what we do when we just talk about things is speculation entirely. And you have to be very careful. I take that 200 IQ nonsense to be just that nonsense. I period, think it's nonsense. End of quotation. Uh, so. yeah, I, uh, I but we've got a hard break here coming up. And uh, when we get back, I want to talk to you more about your experience and, of course, your, your, your mediumship as well. If you would like to know more about Dr. Alan Yugano and his book, The Death Experience, you can check it out at Barnes & Noble or Amazon Online, maybe your library. It is a great read. Now we have a video for you during the break asking the question, have scientists discovered proof of an afterlife? You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself, and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals, anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Alan Yugano about his book, The Death Experience, What It Is Like When You Die. Now, Dr. Yugano, we just played your second musical choice, No One Is Alone, sung by Bernadette Peters. Please tell us, why is this one special? Well, because um, we aren't alone. We all think that we are. And uh, I, like, I love the, the Sondheim's lyrics there on that one because... We believe we're, and when we're in this physical reality, we believe we're walking through life all by ourselves, trying to make decisions. But as I got into mediumship, I realized we're not alone at all. We have guides, and uh, we can ask them at any moment in time. Uh, we're faced with, should I go this way or that way? And they'll show us the direction. Um, it's, it's intuitive. They put it in your intuitive mind rather than your rational mind. And you can... Use that. You're never alone. You never will be alone. Some of the some of our guides have been with us since before we were born, and they've been guiding us through life. Most people think, "Well, I had a gut feeling. All right, I just knew I should do this." Well, that's your guide talking to you, talking through your psyche, telling you what to do. No one is alone, and so I love the the sentiment of that. And yes, people do leave you halfway through the woods, your parents and things like that. And, and they come back later, after they've passed, they come back from the other side and they ask forgiveness for having left you halfway through the woods. So 
I love uh, interesting. Well, I like I love the lyrics. Sondheim wrote, yeah. Beautiful song. I, I have to ask you a question before we get on. Um, we, our discussion just before the break. Did you mean to suggest that there's a potential correlation between NDE experiencers and higher IQs? No. Okay. I'm saying that's not true at all. That's uh, okay. Sort okay. Of okay. Ego-based idea that some people have. All right. <laughs> Good. Let's tell me. Tell me about. You know, I, I guess let's start this way. Are you the kind of medium that a John Edwards or a James Von Prague is? I mean, do you contact the dead uh, on behalf of other people and share messages that way? Yes, I do. Um, and um, I I work um, at a two spiritualist churches here in San Francisco now. Uh, where I'm the medium, and what we do in a church service, it's called spirit greetings rather than a reading. And we bring through, um, like I'll say, I've got your grandma here, and her name is Susan, and and she had uh, black curly hair before it turned gray, and she was actually a good looker when she was in her 40s. And um, she says this, and I'll bring them the message that she loves you, and she misses you, or whatever the message is. And that's what we do at the church. But in a private reading, we'll actually go and, and find the the person they're looking for. And I do that quite often. I also, on on Monday nights, I run a student mediums class at the church. I just host it. And we usually have a seance um, where we sit in a circle and we will um, just meditate and see what what comes through. And everyone to be in that circle has to be a student medium. They have to be working at it. But like uh, last Monday, we... uh, brought through for a new person who came there to the circle. Um, we brought her five spirits that she recognized, and three of them by name. Um, and we gave her the name of, of uh, the, the people, uh, and I gave one name, uh, Gail gave a name, James gave a name. Each of us had names for the person that they were uh, looking for, and, and the, the the person who came had um, had particularly wanted to meet those people. So we do that all the time, uh, especially if someone can bring a picture um, so I know what I'm looking for, uh, so I'll recognize the person if I have to see them. I do most of my work clairsentiently. That's feeling. I, I feel it in my heart. And then I, I translate that feeling into words. <laughs> Translating feelings into a name, is a, to me, is an interesting phenomenon because I do it regularly. I do it often. Um, at the 29th, I was uh, working as a meeting at the church, and I brought through for three sitters, and the sitter is the person who's giving the message. I brought through for three people, I brought through five uh, discarnate entities by name, um, without guessing names or anything like that. I just said, the name is this. I've got your grandmother, Evelyn, here, and I've got your aunt on your mother's side. Her name is Martha, and I've got your aunt on the other side of the family, and her name is Susan, um, and she's on your father's side of the family. I brought the, them through that way, um, five in a row, 100% correct. And when I run the numbers on that, just the statistics, to do it is like, to guess it would be 320 billion to one. I can't guess that. It's got to be coming from spirit on the other side. Somebody's telling me that. They're putting it in my head. When I work in the consciousness research lab with um, Dr. DeLorme, they wire my head and they watch what I'm doing uh, when I'm bringing those thoughts through like that. 
and what okay, and that that doesn't sound like it would fit what uh, skeptics would call cold reading scenarios either. But yeah, James von Prague once uh, I had a conversation with James about an interaction he had with Diane Sawyer, where he sensed uh, through his mediumship skills that she had a major health condition. And he spoke to her about it, and it scared her. And, of course, you know, she ran out and went through all kinds of this, that, and the other, and it turned out that there wasn't anything. And so that that, that became a really harsh moment for the two of them. Do you have those kinds of impressions as well? And if you do, do you act on them? I haven't uh, done any um, health analysis. I've done, I sometimes work in healings um, in a, a spiritual way where but I haven't done any health analysis. When I have worked in healing, um, particularly at the IONS convention last uh, year, in 2014, in September in Newport Beach, they were short some healers, and so I went over and helped Barbara with that. I said, uh, Barbara, I can I can do that. I do it at the church sometime. So I came in and did healings there, and uh, I bring the person in, set them down, and I hold onto their shoulders, and you know, I ask permission to touch you, and then I hold onto their shoulders. And one of my and analyzed that the where the the problem was in her back. I about the fourth um, vertebrae down, and I I was feeling. I said, "There's a lot of heat here. This is a problem right there." And yeah, she's got cancer of the spine, and um, so I, I can feel those things. Um, what happens to me when I do healings like that is I also get messages from their father and their mother who are deceased and things like that. I get, I, the mediumship goes on at the same time as I'm doing healing. And uh, I can't really separate the two. I'm working on that. I'm, I'm a student medium, you know. I'm still studying this. Ten years right. in, I'm still studying, like, concert piano. You have to learn how to do it. Um, but I could, I did analyze what was wrong with that woman at that uh, particular time. I knew, I knew there was something wrong in her back. And I, I couldn't say she had cancer. I couldn't say she had broken bones, you know. But I could tell that's where it was. And so I suppose that people like, uh, on Prague are, are correct in that most of the time. The other thing is, if he was wrong about Diane Sawyer, it's because we're doing this, um, you know, and in it, in it, it, we're trying to do it scientifically, but we're really using our intuition. And so we make mistakes. And let's suppose that as a medium, and I tell people this all the time, let's suppose that I'm, I'm right one quarter of the time and I'm wrong three quarters of the time. I'm still batting 250. It's good enough to be in the major leagues, be in the Giants, and win the World Series. Um, <laughs> 250 batting average. And but people are wanting us as mediums to bat a thousand, and ballplayers don't do that. Um, so I think I think the scary look at, thing. Look at what's right instead of what's wrong in what we bring through. Right, and I concur with what you're saying. But I think the scary thing is, let's take your 250 batting average. That means you struck out. <clears throat> three and four times that you went to bat. And sometimes the strikeout, you know, sometimes the information that some mediums give um, is the kind of information that a person, if they act upon, completely changes their life. Maybe they leave someone, they abandon, you know, uh, change a job, uh, you know, and and I think that's the scary part. If you if you can be wrong three or four times, you have to be really really careful about what information you share, don't you? Yes. So what they do in Great Britain, and I love that they have the Fraudulent Mediums Act over there, 1951, 
and that act made it legitimate to be a medium, but it also required that... Now, this is the Arthur Finley College of Psychic Science you're talking about in Essex? Yeah, in essence, uh, the the whole British system, they have a law in Great Britain that you can't do prediction, um, fortune telling. Okay, Um, please continue. So I I observe that. I don't tell people's fortune. I just bring through a message from their their spirit on the other side, but I don't tell them what to do with their life. Um, Because it's exactly what you're saying. What if you're wrong and you're telling them something? So... um, I work on evidential mediumship, and I sometimes I'm absolutely 100% correct with the evidence, but then I'm not going to bring them a prediction. I'm not going to say, go this way or that way. But you can, by getting in touch with your own guides in your own life, the guides can guide you through life. And I want to ask you more about that, but let me ask you this first. The Morris Pratt Institute, where you studied and continue to study, you've got a stint coming up, uh, I understand, is associated with the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. So did you become an ordained minister? Yeah, I will become a licensed minister. I will become a certified medium, um, having graduated from that. Um, And... But one of the requirements to become a certified medium, you have to turn in six affidavits um, that they accept um, from people who you did a reading for, and and the evidence was so overwhelming that that they uh, would sign an affidavit. And I've got uh, quite a few of those now, but I want to get 18 before I send it in so that I um, become certified, because sometimes they'll throw one out, they'll say, well, that wasn't quite good enough. And so I'm busy collecting those right now. And then I will be a certified medium with the NSAC. Sounds I'm like you got five with, of them just last week. Yeah, and and so I, I um, yeah, oh, you, to, to get them you have to always be in the, the. When I did those five, I got one affidavit because it was worth three people, and two of them didn't sign an affidavit; they just left. You know, a lot of people just leave; they don't realize you're trying to collect an affidavit. And but I did get one affidavit out of that group of five, and. Um, it's just a matter of time. You collect enough affidavits and send them in. The, but the reason for that is they want to know that the medium is actually a medium. They're actually delivering, bringing stuff through that where they have really good evidence. Okay, and what Glenn and I have learned from the British system not to make the predictions because it can really damage people, as, as happened with Diane Sawyer, as you mentioned there. She was worried about that. And so I don't like that kind of thing. Um, I don't, you know, you know, I don't, I don't want to make I don't want to make a prediction for anybody, um, but I do want them to get in touch with their own spirit guides, so then they can then use those guides to help them as they're going through their own life. Okay, let's go to the guides. It's my understanding that you feel you contacted your guide initially through automatic writing process. Is that correct? I mean, tell us about how you met your guides. Okay, my guide. First off, it's Helen. Ellen Bradley, she happens to be my mother-in-law that I never met. She died before I met and married her daughter. And I was working on, uh, she was a, a developer. She developed houses and buildings and stuff here in San Francisco. And I have a building that, that her daughter owns that has some uh, situations that I'm dealing with the, the city. And uh, I was looking at the drawings and the plans, and I would keep saying, Helen, why'd you do this? And Helen, why'd you do that? And I was in the habit of, at the time of journaling, and I still journal every day, and uh, she began to come through in my journaling, in my writing, and not exactly automatic writing, but 
you feel it and you write it. It's um, inspirational writing, you might call it. Um, and she would come through and give me the answer to things of why she did stuff. And eventually she started saying, Helen. She put Helen in there. And I'd say, no, wait a minute, that's my imagination. I'm imagining that. I'm, I'm thinking that Helen's coming through. Then I went to, um, that was about May 2nd when she started coming through. And May the 18th of that year, the, um, the local spiritualist church had a festival of mediums. And I went down to that festival, not planning to hear from Helen. Went to that festival, and, and Eunice Smith was a medium I had to book a session with. And so she's giving me a reading, and she says, Alan, I have a woman here, and she's a mother figure. So naturally, I think it's my mom, my grandma, my great-grandma. And then she says, and she's an architect, and she's from Minnesota. And I'm thinking, well, none of my grandmas, my mom, or anybody were architects. And none of them from Minnesota. They're from Virginia, Colorado, Kansas, Missouri. And... So I said, well, you're wrong. And she said, well, I'm going I'll go back. And she goes back to the spirit that was coming through, this female spirit that was another figure. And then Eunice said, Alan, she's not exactly your relative, but she's a mother figure. Well, that can only be your mother-in-law. Um, and then she says, she's not exactly an architect, but she draws houses. And she's definitely from Minneapolis, Minnesota. She definitely has dark brown curly hair and hazel eyes. And that can only be Helen. Um, Helen drew houses, hired architects to build them. Helen is from Minneapolis, Minnesota. She um, is my, not exactly my relative, but she's a mother figure. And she has dark brown uh, curly hair and hazel eyes. And now when I go to Arthur Finley or wherever I go, anytime I see a stranger, a medium who doesn't know me, and I get a reading, Helen shows up. And she shows up with all kinds of evidence. Uh, one time I'm at a, a, a thing, and the person had heard about Helen, the other medium. So Helen comes through in that person, in that medium's interpretation, as Dorothy. She's got Dorothy. The, the, the medium saw Dorothy on the yellow brick road with a little basket and a little dog, Toto. And he said, it's Dorothy. Well, Dorothy is Helen's middle name. And so she comes through as Dorothy. But she, she comes through all the time. That's how I met my, my guide. And so now when I sit down in the morning, as I did this morning, she wakes me up at 3 a.m. I get up, I go write for an hour in a journal, and Helen will tell me all kinds of things. And she just, just writes right through me. It's not quite automatic writing yet, but it's going that way. It's, it's, it's still me feeling and writing it. She's used my feelings a lot. And so she can make me feel things and she'll write things. And the, the way I know that it's not me writing is the profoundness of some of it. And other times I'll read it to my, my wife, who is her daughter, and she'll say, I mean, that's definitely Helen, that's definitely not you there with that piece that you just read there. So she comes through. Again, it's not all, it's not perfect. You don't just, you know, when, when it becomes automatic writing, you know, if I can finally get into trance, where the writing happens without me doing any thinking, then it'll be totally from the other side. But right now, it's partly colored by my own thoughts sneaking in and and uh, adding to what I'm writing. But it's the majority of it is coming from the other side when, when it's coming from hell. Okay. You know, I, I want to get into the, you know, 
One of your areas that I enjoyed most in the book was the science of the afterlife, if you will, or at least, you know, how you deal with uh, perception of space as an illusion or, uh, you know, uh, dark matter and so forth. But before we jump into that, maybe I'll just say that a little bit towards the next section. Um, when you talk about the the afterlife, the way you have, there seems to be, you know, some implicit information that I've let us skip over. If you commit suicide, well, you, you just didn't finish it. You're just going to have to get another body and come back. And I think that's paraphrasing what you said. So yeah. is is reincarnation real? Uh, the Akashic record, is that real? Uh, do we live lives uh, set out with karma and dharma? Karma as in karma-laden consequences, dharma as in duty, etc., as is spelled out in Eastern thought? Okay, my belief on this, and we don't have a great deal of science on it yet, my belief is that, yes, karma matters. Uh, that karma is our own vision, our own perception. And if we perceive it, the world's an evil place, it's an evil place for us. If we perceive the world's a good place, it's a good place for us. And so karma matters. About reincarnation, when you come back from inner death experience, that's reincarnation. You're reincarnating in the same body, but you're reincarnated. You came back into the body. So yes, reincarnation is a, a definite possibility, a definite reality. It's interesting when we study Ian Stevenson and Bruce Grayson's and Jim Tucker's work at University of Virginia Psychiatry Department. Uh-huh. Um, they're studying children who remember past lives. Right. And they've done about 3,000 of these cases now. When they study these cases, an interesting thing is the majority of the cases had a traumatic death in the prior life. In other words, they were cut short and then they reincarnated and, and they remember this past life. And so I'm quite interested in that looking at it and saying that sometimes if we're cut short before we finish what we were doing here, they come back and reincarnate. Is that always the case? Do we only reincarnate if we didn't finish our task? Or do we incarnate or reincarnate over and over? I don't have and That's, that's an interesting question. Yeah. So the possibility in your mind is we have one life to live, and if we don't get done what we're supposed to in that lifetime, well, it wasn't cut short, so there's no necessity for another chance. But if it, if it was cut short, well, then maybe you get another chance. Is that one of the implications of the to what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's one of the possibilities. The other is that we live hundreds of lifetimes that we just keep reincarnating. And But um, I think that we have enough evidence to say that we don't just live one lifetime necessarily okay uh, yeah. reincarnation is a possibility we have enough information to say that we don't I have enough it's... science to say that uh, we all reincarnate every time um, or and we don't have enough science to say that we don't we do have enough science to say reincarnation is definitely a possibility definitely happens it happens in the near-death experience we come back into the same body and with the remembered past lives they're coming back in another body so I think we've also got enough. It's real, but how does it operate? Do we live one life or ten lives or a hundred? We don't have the science of that. Right. I think we've also got enough science to say with a degree of certainty consciousness survives the death of the physical body. But that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. Uh, we have a hard break right now, so 
We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi. I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. We've been chatting with Dr. Alan Yugano about his life, work, and book, The Death Experience. In this half hour, we'll take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So uh, once again, I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. Yugano, we just played your third musical choice, Be Still My Soul. Why this one, sir? Oh, it's um, my favorite hymn. Um, probably will be played at my funeral. The um, I like it because it says, Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. Go back and be with the light. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, and love's pure joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall be at last. And it was written in 1752 by uh, Catherine von Schlegel, but um, it's very representative of what the near-death experience was like. 
and what what I plan to go back to. So that's why I like it. It's uh, it touches me. And, you know and what is it like? Had a similar experience. What, what is it like living in the afterlife? Um, I think it's all just love and peace, absolute bliss. Um, when I talk to people on the other side, the guides, they tell me that it's it's a physical life, just like we have here, but that um, we can no longer hide our thoughts. Here, you can think some thought about somebody, but they don't know what you're thinking. And over there, we read each other's minds. And I recall that you know, when I was at the light, we could just read each other's minds. We just knew what the other was thinking. And this is what my guides say about the other side, is people arrive there, and this is where karma comes in. Um, if you've got bad karma, you remember all the evil things you did, and suddenly you realize everyone can read your mind on that side. And you have all these horrible things that you did, and you have to overcome that, and it takes a while. Um, many times I have the spirits come through. My parents have both come through to ask forgiveness from me. And many times that's what comes through is that uh, for people I'm, I'm doing the reading for, they're, they're departed spirits who want forgiveness, who want to do reparation for the evil that they did when they were in this life. And they want to be forgiven. They want to they want to make reparation with that person. And that's what uh, it tends to be more, more often the case. Many people, they come, they want to hear from Grandma that loves them, and that's what I want to hear from the other side. Grandma's still there and she loves you. But when Grandma left, she said, I love you. It's the ones who were mean to you and abused you and everything else that want to come through and get your forgiveness. And we see a lot of that working in mediumship with people on the other side asking for forgiveness because they're cleaning up their karma, if you want to look at it that way. There is no punishment. There is no hell. Um, there's no retribution. It's our own karma and our own cleaning up that we have to suffer through on that side. Do so the better we can be on this side or the more spiritually um, enlightened we become on this side, the better off we'll be on that side. So do we, you know, are you suggesting that, you know, once we cross over, we just all wake up and, you know, evil is gone. Uh, there's just the memory of it. Uh, there are no such thing as, you know, evil spirits and bad doers and poltergeists and whatnot. Well, poltergeists are people, I uh, believe in, uh, let's say that there are eight more dimensions as string theory would anticipate or seven spheres as, as many um, afterlife is uh, envisioned in many, many traditions. Um, the people who are earthbound are just on the next level. They're, they don't even probably know they're dead. They're poltergeists. And sometimes when I talk to poltergeists, they'll say, well, I don't know who these squatters are that moved into my house. Well, they're the people that bought the house after the poltergeist died. He doesn't know he's dead yet. Um, so that's what that is. I don't really believe in evil spirits. Um, I think evil is a, a determination. Um, when To go, become biblical, when Adam and Eve ate the apple, uh, the knowledge of good and evil, we, in our ego, we want to think we can pick good and evil, so we make all this discrimination and the decision-making. But I don't think there really is good and evil. It's a, it's something that is a relative thing. And people say, how can that be? Well, Hitler thought it was a good thing to exterminate the Jews. He thought it was a good thing. We all think it's a bad thing. And I, I agree, it's a bad thing to exterminate the Jews. But Hitler thought it was a good thing. 
good and evil are perspective. They're not set, cut and dried. And I'm not saying Hitler was right. Don't misunderstand. Well, I'm saying uh, that it's a viewpoint. What's good and what's evil? So there's no such thing as Plato, Aristotle, and the Greeks thought of uh, an absolute virtue. There's no such thing. Cultural relativity is where it's at. So that uh, that 14-year-old girl who had her nose and her ears cut off um, was discarded to the stable simply because her father sold her to a man who she failed to please. Well, you know, hey, too bad. That's just how it is. And and that's, you know, uh, that's what we should expect, and so we should just allow it. And I have great issue with that. So let's go no, on. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going clear there what I'm saying. That Well, what that's what cultural relativity takes us to, doctor. Say again? That's where cultural relativity takes us to. If we don't have a virtue, if we don't have uh, an absolute value system, I mean, um, you know, what have we got? Nothing. There is no such thing as good or evil. I, you know, um, hey. There is no such thing as good or evil, but we have okay. to operate with each other in a value system. So we have to no. use the value system to operate in. Okay. And for that reason, you know, I like to have a, an agreed value system. I was a scout leader for years teaching people the scout oath and the scout law. Um, I believe in having a value system that's agreed to. But you know, ultimately, from a scientific viewpoint, what's good and what's evil, it's very hard to say. Well, you know, this is a philosophical point, and I, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but bottom line is um, there are folks in this world that have already agreed to the way they want to interpret, say, radical Islam. And there are folks in this world who have already agreed on what we think is civilized and how a person should be treated. And there are folks that have signed on to treaties that, you know, provide rights for human beings. And these folks all have their agreements and they don't agree with each other. So what we're really what you're really saying is, well, the convention within a culture is what, you know, you live by. So you're in America. You treat a 14 year old girl different than if you're a Pakistani man who just paid for this woman. You see, so and and I'm sorry, you know, I I don't want to get on this horse. That's just one that I have great issue with. You state that perception of space is an illusion. Please unpack this idea for us and how it's relevant to NDE research. Okay. Um, the consciousness is what the universe is made out of. And our, our uh, Newtonian, our classical Newtonian physics um, wants reality to be based on substance, on, on objects, on, on atoms, on um, electrons that are, that are substance, that are material. And the idea of material includes space and time. It includes that it's existing for a period of time and that it occupies space. And uh, quantum electrodynamics, um, which we pretty much got formulated solidly in about 1934, disproves all of the first principles of Newtonian physics. And those first principles, um, the one that's easiest to explain, uh, how it's been been ongoing is locality, but it's reality, locality, causality, continuity, determinism, and certainty. Those are the the first principles that we Newtonian physicists use to analyze the world. Locality is the one that has to do with space, and is space real? In in 
1964, John Bell finally uh, thought up a uh, method to uh, prove experimentally that locality was either real or it wasn't. And beginning in 1982, Alan Aspect uh, and many other experimenters, and I think it's about a dozen times between uh, 1982 and, and uh, 2012, we've proven that non-locality is a reality. It's that shows that if we use two greats, uh, the disposition of great two will determine the manifestation of the particle on great one, suggesting, of course, that uh, something in the future is impacting the present uh, and the past. Well, we're not, we're not finished with that science, but we, ha- we have been able to observe um, retroactive causation. Right. That's, yeah, and and so time is an illusion as well. And um, 
So it would we, have to be if space enough, is. We go far enough with this. If time is an illusion, if space is an illusion, and then time runs backwards and all that sort of thing, we eventually come to the conclusion that all of our facts are illusions. <laughs> right, so that which it? gives yeah, rise we, to where do the thoughts come from, and what do I mean? You know, what are what, what script are we acting out now in this physical world? Uh, if that is indeed how it how it operates, we're we're acting out in the perception that we have. Okay, we, like we a see, player piano. But say again, like a player piano. We're not really stroking the keys behind the scenes. There's mm-hmm. this this uh, you know. Neat little instrument that is uh, producing the tune? I haven't yet got enough science to prove if free will exists or not. Okay? It appears to exist in a number of our scenarios, and it appears not to exist in a number of them. So is free will real? Um, I think it might be an illusion. (laughs) (laughs) So there we are again, right? Right. Um, I don't have that answer. Some things... I realize we may never be able to answer when we're still stuck in this level of consciousness. And as I say, the flames, when I came back in from the other side, um, the flames was the annihilation of that expanded consciousness that we had on that side. And um, I believe that um, as we progress from this physical life into the afterlife, we may indeed know more than we know now. Um, I hope so. Stuart White's book, uh, about Betty White, the, um, the unobstructed universe, and Betty from the afterlife is saying that she lives in an unobstructed universe and that we here in the physical live in an obstructed universe because we make our own limits. And uh, another, a good way to look at it is we can't walk through the wall, but people who are ghosts or in the next life can walk through the wall, okay? Right. And right. that's the difference between the limited and the unlimited universe. Uh, hard for us to conceive of while we're in the physical, but very much easier for near-death experiencers to conceive of because they've been over there and they've seen that there is something else. Right. Uh, And fortunately, like yourself, they're willing to share it, even at great risk sometimes to their reputation, etc. I have been hogging your time, and uh, this is our half hour that we invite questions. And so I'm going to go to the chat room and start feeding you some questions out of there. CB says, kind of funny to think trying this, you're tying this in with the observer effect. Might be a good question for our guest. Is it possible that reports on NDEs and then the content of NDEs may be generating a construct in consciousness, or is it influencing folks to expect something that was already there? Okay, now this could be happening now. Um, the the near-death experience is, has become quite popular and uh, and. If you say near-death experience, most people know what you're talking about now. So they may have an expectation. But earlier on, when we first started studying the near-death experience, many, many people who had the experience had never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. Uh, it was 1970. And the term hadn't even been coined yet. And right. yet my experience matches all the other near-death experiences. Yeah, so, th- th- there were experiences, but it was Raymond Moody that came along and actually gave us the term. And yeah, you're one of the pioneers. So, yeah. So I was there in 1970. 
And I, you know, I read uh, what St. Paul says in Second Corinthians 12, and he's obviously talking about a new death experience there. And uh, I'm not talking about the his seeing the light as in the uh, uh, said in the uh, book of Luke, but in Second Corinthians 12, where he talks about it in the third person, he talks about his own experience of the light. Right. And he's definitely talking about a near death experience. He even says out of body. He uses the word out of body. And um, so that's what I would say to that one. Okay. You know, it's interesting that uh, you were born a Baptist, and forgive my background in psychology, but you're born a Baptist. Um, you're you're practicing demonology right now. <laughs> I you know I say that with great levity. I'm sure you know, yeah. and uh, and yet you're you're you you refer to the Bible on a pretty regular basis, but ignore the commandments in favor of cultural relativity. Uh, very interesting. I'd love to have uh, uh, an opportunity to really flesh that out with you sometime. Maybe we can bend the elbow over a cup of coffee or something together. Back to the chat room. Ron says, is there, is, I'm sorry, did, what did you say, Doctor? I say you should come down to the uh, convention in San Antonio, the Lions Convention. I'm giving that some serious thought right this minute. You can okay, Ron in the chat there, room yeah. says... How do we get in touch with our guide? By guide, do you mean our higher self? Well, I think you answered that already, but what's a quick, easy way, if there is such a thing, for someone to begin to contact their guide? The, the best thing to do is start to meditate. Uh, you need to meditate to calm your mind. To um, and There's a lot of different kinds of meditation. But the thing to do is get into a, a meditation tradition and meditate every day. And then as your mind gets calm, then start directing your meditation. Focus on what you're looking for and focus on your guides. And start journaling. Just start writing. Just start writing whatever pops into your mind. And some of the things that pop into your mind say, where's this coming from? When you say, where's this coming from? That's an indication that you didn't think it up. And that's the best I can tell you right there. Start journaling and first meditate, get into a calm state, and then journal and All right. One more. Works uh, at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I'm pretty pretty calm and peaceful at that time. I wake up in the middle of the night, and my guides talk to me. They know I'm, they, they can talk to me at three o'clock, and they they start coming through your writing. And okay. Say, I, that's not me. Think that's not that's not my thought. Where did that come from? All right, sir. One more quick question, and uh, then we're going to run out of time. And I want to give you enough time to give everybody information about your website, upcoming events, including IONS, etc. This question is from, I don't know, Lit Nix something. Attending an IONS conference was literally a life-saving event for me, but some people can't go in person. Is there another way for people to attend online? Yes, there is. We do um, uh, live streaming. You can go to the IONS site and you can sign up for live streaming so you can go to the convention and, and watch it on your uh, computer. And you can also buy all of that as a set of discs um, after the convention. The, there's a bit of a cost to it, around $100. I, I don't know what that cost. Um, but that's a lot cheaper than flying to the convention and, and uh, buying a hotel. And, you know, you can spend a couple thousand bucks if you fly there and, and go to the hotel. And uh, I think it's worth it to go there. I, I, I love going there. But you can also buy it by live streaming. 
We spend a lot of money on that so that we okay. can give you the whole entire convention on your computer. In, for in 30 seconds or so, sir, please tell everybody where they can learn more about you, your activities, uh, get your book, etc. Okay, you can get my book from Amazon. Just click on Amazon, The Death Experience, and my name will pop up, and you can find the book that way. It's available as Kindle or as a, a printed book. If you come to the convention, I'll sign one for you. Um, my website is afterlife.pro, and it usually lists where I'm going to be speaking. I'll be speaking in California in September, in uh, Texas in September. I'll be speaking in Arizona in October. It's all on the website. Okay, and the website again? Afterlife.pro. Afterlife.pro. That throws a lot of folks, but there is a .pro. Afterlife.pro. Wow. <clears throat> I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Yugano, for your willingness to share everything with us today and for taking the time to do so. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us as well. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.